Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Mercier. Louise is a nutritional therapist, award-winning author of How Food Shapes Your Child, and a presenter on Early Years TV Food Channel. As well as all this, Louise is the force behind the Health Kick, promoting a healthy lifestyle without the contradictory and often misplaced advice in the world of nutrition. Hello and welcome to Louisa's Health Cook Podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Sue McInniff from Charity Link. Charity Link is a, well I will let Sue do the introduction to Charity Link because she can do it much better than I can, but Charity Link is a local charity doing great work to support the communities and I would imagine much needed more now than ever before with, with everything that's happened with our finances and the situation of rising health and wealth divide and, and the, the very real poverty that is nobody's fault, but is a very real problem for so many people in the UK today. So I'm delighted to be joined by Sue. Hello, Louise, and thank you for the invitation today. Sue, could you tell us um, a bit more about Charity Link and the wonderful things that you do, um, just to sort of get us started on that? Yes, of course. Uh, Charity Link, we find funding to help local people in need. and um, We provide the very basic essentials that I would hope that you and I and the, most of, and the majority of your listeners would take for granted, such as beds, cookers, clothing and food. And it's to ensure that local people are warm, safe and fed. And we work right across Leicester, Leicestershire, Rutland and Northamptonshire and support anybody who's experiencing financial hardship. And as you rightly point out, um, as you can imagine, we have seen a big uplift in the request for help since the pandemic started. And just to put that into some context for you, so since the first lockdown on the 23rd of March 2020, we've helped over 11,500 people, 4,500 of which were children. We've distributed 9,000 items worth £1.5 million and that's the level of the need that is out there. And we've seen people come to us who have never been in the welfare system, have never needed to go to charities for support, um, people in areas that we wouldn't normally support, um, not our traditional client place, wealthy parts of the city and the county. And the pandemic has had a devastating impact right across our communities. I think that's really important that we we highlight that sort of as I think with poverty with poverty in the media is often represented in a way that is a proportion of society um you know a part of society in in certain areas in urban areas in and it's not that at all is it it's very much as you say an escalating issue across all demographics across all anybody can lose a job lose a business no matter how good that may have been in the first place it's not just to the people who we may wrongly assume are falling into poverty. It literally could be anybody. Absolutely. And there's lots of stereotypes around who experiences poverty. But I think the pandemic has shown the vulnerability of us all. And it's well, you know, well documented that, you know, we are two, three bad decisions or three things have three sets of circumstances can impact on us. And with the best one in the world that we feel that we've got those financial buffers in place, they can soon very, very quickly unravel. And we've had um, people who have worked in the hospitality trade and it was a couple. They had children in the household. But of course, the pandemic hit the hospitality trade severely and they both lost their job. Now, you you could plan and think, well, one of us might be made redundant, but to be two parents 
to be made redundant with children in the household, they only had child benefit to rely on as income while they waited to go through the universal credit system. And just to give you an indication locally, the universal credit claimants since the pre-pandemic up until May 2021 last year doubled. Mm. It was a significant uplift in universal credit claims. Is that the biggest increase you've seen? How does this compare with sort of the financial crash back in 2008? Is this a similar situation? It's difficult to compare because universal credit wasn't in existence at that point. What we found with the financial crash in 2008, it It took a while to start filtering through the system. So I actually joined um, Charity Link in 2008 because I actually got made redundant. (laughs) And um, I was in retail and my husband then got made redundant. So I'm talking from experience when I say you you plan for one redundancy, you don't plan for two. My husband and and I were both made redundant within the same um, month as well. So it certainly happens. It does happen, doesn't it? And I had a little boy at the time and I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. So it, um, 2008 wasn't a great year, but obviously she was born and that made it all better. Um, so when I joined, it actually took, in, it started to filter through in actually 2009, because again, people do have some financial buffers, but it starts to get stripped away and stripped away. And if you don't have any fa- family support or you don't have that strong social network that can support you, then it's then that you need to rely on outside support, whether that's the welfare system or charities like ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about the stigma of the welfare system, and that is very much still in place today. So do you find that people are reluctant or almost ashamed to be coming and asking for help? Is there still that level of stigma around it? I think there is. But what's been interesting, I think, because the pandemic, because it's affected so many across our communities, that actually I'm finding a lot of people are being more open about it, that they're saying I had to go on to universal credit because my, you know, this is people, you know, whether they're self-employed or because they um, made redundant or they're simply that their work dried up so much that, you know, they had to rely on other sources and have been much more open about claiming universal credit. So I think, that maybe one of the benefits of the pandemic is that it does start to remove those stereotypes that you know anybody could experience financial hardship and you can be impacted and it can be things outside of your control so maybe that might be a positive and also one thing that the pandemic really really highlighted was the inequalities in our communities and how much that we Poverty is still and will be very, very hidden. And because of that, we don't need to, you know, we don't see it. We don't see the real, you know, depth of inequalities that are in our communities. And because of that, obviously, the most vulnerable were impacted the hardest. And they're also the ones who won't feel the benefits when the economy does start to pick up because it'll take such a long time for it to filter down. And food poverty in particular is the most hidden because you don't know who is experiencing food poverty. And as parents, it's not something that you'd want to openly talk about, the fact that you're going without meals to ensure that your children can eat. And that is very, very, very hidden. And it's not something that we can see, you know, you couldn't look at somebody or a family, you know, take your children to the school gates. There will be families there who are in that situation, but you won't, you wouldn't know no, unless they told you because it's behind closed doors and you can't see it. 
And that's what we've been talking about through this series of, of podcasts on, on the poverty issue we certainly have been covering. The numbers around food bank usage, and, and they were escalating. We can't just blame the pandemic for the, the food poverty. That was certainly escalating pre-pandemic at an alarming rate anyway. Um, we had a guest, Hugh McNeil from Coventry Food Bank, join us in a previous episode where he spoke of his personal journey of business failing and ending up needing to use the food bank himself. And that prompted him to join the food bank. He's been with him for years ever since working with them and and supporting communities. But the numbers, I think it's 123% increase in food bank usage in the last five years. So that includes pre-pandemic. Of course, the pandemic is going to make that much worse, but also so are the years to come as a result of the pandemic, because we haven't seen the end of the financial impacts of this pandemic, not by a long shot. No, and I, you know you can track the um, in, you know when food banks started to be introduced into the UK and how it's increased way back to two thousand and four. But of course, when you had the financial crash, you also had the introduction and the withdrawal of the welfare system when we went through a period of austerity. And the shocking statistic is there are more food banks in the UK than there are branches of McDonald's. Really? That is a statistic. So it's estimated. Now, this is based on to actually to actually come to a number of food banks is very, very difficult. So you've got the Trussell Trust and, you know, they have a, a wide network of food banks and they log. They know exactly how many there are. But there are also independent food banks. There's community led food banks. We've seen during the pandemic emerging food banks that are very, very grassroots. So so the statistic is around 2,200 food banks and there are 1,300 branches of McDonald's. But that also doesn't tell you the full picture because I was listening to a really interesting um, research and this was about the increase in food insecurity and they tracked it from 2004 to 2016. So they saw the increase there and also the increase in food banks. But what they were looking at in terms of um, not just food bank uses, but trying to estimate food insecurity around it. And they estimated out of seven households who are experiencing food insecurity only one of those households was actually accessing a food bank for a variety of different reasons. So actually the food bank usage is a barometer, but it doesn't actually tell you the full picture. It's not a true reflection of how many people are actually in need of them. No. And I was just, what I was reading before we started this podcast, which kind of distracted me slightly and I was a bit late, is the Food Foundation Foundation Think Tank. They released some data, and this was on Monday, so this is far more up to date. They estimate that one million adults went without food for an entire day in the past month. So so this is January. And... um, Some of the reasons behind that was the increase um, in prices in terms of food and energy and also the removal of the universal top up of £20 per week. They estimated that one in five households were now faced with that awful dilemma of whether to put the heating on or to eat. Now, this was polled um, 4,200 adults and this was in January. And alongside that, which this is something that I know is very close to your heart, they estimated 2 million children were living in households that did not have access to healthy or affordable diet. And of course, as I know you're so passionate about, that of course increases the risk of diet-related diseases. And I think that number will be much higher in terms of the number of households who 
Because I think we have this assumption around food. And if you couldn't afford to go to a shop and buy some food of any description, then you are buying some food. But it's what is that food? Because we know on the whole that even if you can afford to go to the shop, food prices are going up and up and up. And unfortunately, it's completely wrong. But healthy foods are on average three times more expensive than unhealthy foods. So for those who don't fall into the real category of that horrible decision of can I afford to put the heating on? No, you know, that kind of food or heat scenario, which I know with gas prices and electricity prices is certainly going to get worse for many. Um, But there are those who are on a budget doing the shop thinking their shop is okay. But actually, because of the way our food landscape has changed, because of the nature of the food industry putting profit over health, all the foods that people can afford even when they're trying their very best and doing a shop and making meals, still going to be facing nutritional problems and deficiencies because healthy food is so expensive. Our food is is not great. The, the food in, available is not great. It's nutritionally devoid. It's made for convenience. It's ultra processed. It's definitely made with convenience and not health in mind. And unfortunately, for many more people than those numbers will show, they will be living with food but not healthy food. And there's a, there's a real escalating health and wealth divide, as, as I'm sure that you know, of those who are aware of these issues with food and can avoid the offers that are right in your face of everything that's unhealthy and steer around to the food that takes more planning, is more expensive, but is nutritionally much better for us. And there are not many people who are able to do that. And that is a much bigger issue for me. It's a wider issue. Yeah, because there isn't the... the yeah, the choice isn't there. And also I was looking at um, something else that is, is, is quite new, is that you now got this buy now, pay later on groceries. So which is just going to lead very vulnerable families into a death, you know, a debt trap, because if you've now got the choice where you can buy, but you are going to actually, you know, even though it's interest free, but that is not going to work. And most vulnerable families are going to miss on payments. And therefore, you're starting to pay interest and that builds up and then you're going to be in a quite severe debt level. But again, one of the companies called Flava, which is the um, an online food store that's pioneered this buy now, pay later for groceries. And um, their promotions of the um, buy now, pay later on food tend to be on products that are high in sugar and mm-hmm. fat. They always are in supermarkets as well. And this is this is the real issue that I think needs to be raised. I think our approach to health in this country and globally is very reactive. We, we will let things get to a certain point and then think, oh, we've got rising obesity levels we've got conditions like scurvy and rickets back in the UK in 2022 and they said 2021 I forgot what year we were 2022 we have scurvy and rickets these diseases should have been wiped out in the Victorian age they're back we have we have malnutrition and obesity within 44% of populations within the same populations because food poverty doesn't necessarily mean that people are underweight We have lots of people in food poverty who, because of the nature of food, they can buy or they are donated. And we covered this in um, an episode on what to donate in a food parcel, how to make the food parcel support health, not just be giving food for the sake of giving food, but actually to create a parcel that is supporting health. Because a lot of the foods that are cheaper, convenient, undonated are actually promoting obesity. Even though we have food poverty and malnutrition, we have obesity within the same populations. And All of these things escalate health issues, escalate ill health, 
reduce longevity of life, increase the amount of money the NHS had to spend on reactive care and things like type 2 diabetes um, costs a ridiculous amount per minute to the NHS. It's the most expensive condition that the NHS currently is is supporting. And that is just going to get worse because now we have over 3,400 children in the UK with it, whereas 20 years ago we had one. So these issues are are so apparent, we can see them. But what really needs to change is changes to the food industry to make real foods, healthy foods, affordable and appealing, not just a bag of lentils that we all know is cheap. But if you don't have the facilities at home to do anything with that bag of lentils, and you'll know this, Sue, and you can talk us through things like cooker donations and things to families, but what use is a bag of lentils to you if you don't have the kitchen facilities to do that? So we do need to see a real change, and I don't have the answers for that, unfortunately, but I'm sure you can talk us through, Sue, some real people and some real scenarios where something like a cooker or something makes such a difference and enables those people to be more informed and more empowered and more in control, which I think is something people lose with poverty. Absolutely. And everything that we do is to increase self-dignity, self-esteem, reduce stress and anxiety and, you know, to improve daily life. And to be honest, it's all too common that we have requests for help for cookers and children in the household mum is doing the best she can and they've either got a microwave or just nothing so if they've got a microwave it's already meals so high in sugar high in fat there's no healthy eating options because they don't have the facilities to be able to prepare a healthy meal or they have nothing and if you have nothing then the only other option is takeaway food which is is bad for your health and expensive and we see this theme day in day out and it is just a situation that shouldn't be happening in our country today quite frankly we shouldn't have people who do not have the facilities to cook food and do not have the ability to buy healthy nutritious food we also alongside that of course we have people who don't have fridges so therefore they can't store fresh food they have to you know they have to then buy um, unhealthy food because they have nowhere to store it and also nowhere to store medicines if they have an um, an ill health or an underlying disability again common common themes that we see every single day here absolutely and the bulk of what we do is providing cookers mm, that that's really interesting because that is something that so many people take for granted and i think when things are in the media, it's it's often this the argument that I often see, and I can never go into these chats because it would, and you must never be able to either because it would just make you so angry when people are responding to a news article of food poverty saying, well, why don't they get a job? Why don't they get another job? Why don't they do more? What are they, well, it was all right, I managed, and we didn't do that in the war. It's a very, very different scenario. And people, of course, have tried that and have done everything that they can. And I think whilst there's that, misrepresentation and misunderstanding we're so far from where we need to be but as you say the UK should not be seeing these problems as a country with the sixth largest economy in the world it was highlighted in in the um, start of the lockdown with Marcus Rashford bless him doing what he was doing and raising that the whole issue of the school meals and the lockdowns and the, the real consequences that that had on those children 
for that to take a professional footballer to bring it to the attention to shame people into action was you know was really not where we should be so we're so far from where we should be and there are many people like you doing things on the ground but you can only help so many you can only do so much in your area and so many people do that within their areas but I asked this to Hugh and I'm, I'm going to ask you what would you ideally and I had a magic wand I can wave this at government there are many things I'm sure we'd like to do if we could wave a magic wand at government but in terms of this issue what would you really like to see that you think would for me it's the food industry let's make the change there and we, we stop this health um, spiral that we, we're walking into what would it be for you Sue? I think it's putting the right support in place um, poverty is a complex issue and um, you know there's, it's multifaceted. But in the main, people are struggling because A, they don't have the support network. They are underpaid. They can't afford childcare and the childcare costs to be able to increase their hours because it doesn't pay. People who are extremely vulnerable, who cannot work, whether they're in a caring capacity or due to ill health and disability, who are the most vulnerable in our society, the ones who are most impacted by food poverty and food insecurity, the support should be there, whether that's financial support, but also the support in the communities. Those that Having a more holistic and wraparound approach stop the stigmatization that it is some sort of lifestyle choice I can assure you no one would choose this life uh, without having a cooker to prepare meals for your children as a lifestyle choice so there are things we can do but I think you know we've 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 kind of been on this this train that it's it's their fault it's their decision it's their lifestyle sort um lifestyle choice and and with that narrative, we've been withdrawing the welfare system away. Now, there's lots of people who would argue, well, you know, it's great and the welfare system's wonderful. But I can assure you there's probably a much, much change in perception of that with the amount of people who would never expect it to be in the welfare system who find themselves in universal credit and would find that a bit of a shock about how little you receive. And we need to protect our vulnerable in our society. We are a wealthy nation and we are not doing everything that we could possibly do. And there's other factors as housing as well. You know, a lot of what the work we do is putting basic items into either private rented flats or housing associations where those facilities aren't there. So you're moving the most vulnerable. Many um, have been homeless. Many have been victims of domestic violence into a, a, a new tenancy. It will have no carpets on the floor. It'll be concrete. There'll be no beds. There's no cooker. There's nothing. So you're moving families who have nothing into nothing. But as far as the statistics are concerned, that would go down as a family being rehomed, wouldn't it? They are rehomed, but that mm-hmm. certainly is not but it's a not, home. it's not the home. No, <laughs> but as far home. as ticking that box, um, no. you know, as far as they can tick that box on a statistic and say, well, so many families have been rehomed, aren't we doing a fantastic job? But as you say, what are they being put into? And and does does that stop there? How are they meant to then, you know, put children to bed on a concrete floor? You know, it's it's one thing to say, well, you've been rehomed. But then completely being left 
to their own devices when they have no capacity to do anything about the situation. So thank goodness for people like you. And I know that you can't do everything. Um, You know, obviously you can only do so much. So talk me through how your funding works because you have some sort of wonderful way of, of turning funding into more funding, don't you? Yes, we do. We're quite unique in how we work because what we're doing is we're actually tapping into charitable funds for individuals in need. And some are over 500 years old. Many are Victorian funds that were set up before the welfare system. We are ourselves a Victorian charity that was set up to support the most vulnerable in the communities and some are far more recent. So what we're doing is we're tapping into all these different funds for individuals in need. So it could be an occupational fund that's been set up. Obviously, Leicester is quite wealthy in terms of those funds because the boot and shoe industries, the textiles industries. So anybody who's been working in those industries will try and look to get funds for them. We hold funds in-house as well that we distribute on behalf of other much smaller trusts who are unable to get those funds to those who need it. So we work in very different ways. So we're tapping into funds that are kind of in existence already but we're making sure we're bringing those in and ensuring they go to the people that they were designed to go to in a very efficient way. And for example, children in need money, we all donate to children in need. That goes into other trust funds. Some go to support people, uh, children overseas. Some may go to support children in a very Pacific area. And then, of course, they have a rather large pot to support children who are experiencing poverty in England. And we tap into those funds. We're one of the biggest accessors and referrers into those funds and we ensure that we bring that to here in the local um, communities that we work in to ensure the children who are experiencing poverty can receive support from that. So it's quite complex. Um, We estimate there's maybe about three billion pounds in these charitable funds. Like I say, some are extremely old, uh, some are more recent. We work with the um, Children and Textiles Industry Trust, which was set up by Charles Dickens originally. Um, because obviously when he was writing um, in the Victorian times, he realised that there was severe poverty and children were being forced into really awful yeah, to workhouses and, and awful working conditions. So he set up a particular trust fund to help children who were affected. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating area that most of us are not aware of because it's not something that would impact on our day-to-day lives like say I worked in the retail industry got made redundant but it wasn't until I came to Charity Link I found out there was a retail trust fund to support people who worked in the retail industry who have fallen on hard times which would have been quite handy had I known that but but I got a job so it was fine (laughs) but yeah so what we're doing if you think of us as brokers that we're brokering money but the beauty of it is is any money we access on behalf of people in need can only go to people in need. It's called what restricted funding. So we can't touch it. We can't use it for any other purpose than to help people in need. So we bring it through, we purchase the goods, and we deliver those directly to our clients to ensure that, that there's no stress in their experience. They're treated with respect and dignity throughout that process. Mm-hmm. And I know you do lots of things. You had your comedy um, night last night and you do the three peaks and you do lots of fundraising events throughout the year where individuals can, you know, lots of people like to do something for, you know, to, to you know, do some a challenge for themselves or something that's a bit of fun. And you can do that with sponsorship to raise money for you. So individuals can raise money for Charity Link or organisations can do a corporate 
challenge or a corporate night out with you. So could you tell us how people can actually support you? Because you've said all the amazing things that you do, and we'll make sure that we put the links up so that people know how they can support you. But obviously, you you rely on people that can continue to support you as well to to give donations to raise money on your behalf to you know, to get involved with things could you tell us what you've got coming up how people can get involved absolutely well we have our, our annual event as you mentioned the Leicester Three Peaks which is in September and all the details of that are on our website charity-link.org and all our events and opportunities to get involved but this is one of our 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 main events and one we love the most because we want to make it inclusive it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek there are three peaks in Leicestershire I can assure you and, and, a, and a few little hills along the way but it's a great opportunity to come together um, raise some funds meet new friends everybody who joins us is absolutely wonderful they're just a great bunch of people you can experience parts of the Leicester countryside that I'll guarantee you haven't seen before and of course raise funds for local people in need it's a win-win all round and like I say we had a comedy night that's an event um, that we were so pleased that we could run it this year because obviously last year we couldn't and also there's lots of ways people can become involved uh, whether that's spreading the word about our work which is really essential because we know we're not reaching everybody and actually going out and talking to people and letting them know what we do um, and you know passing our details on is wonderful so yes yeah, see there's so much going on there's so many ways people can get involved with you and it's so important that people do because I know I met you a few years ago and and I used to go out and, and network I certainly don't do that now I, I'm more of a recluse and a hermit now but when I used to I remember I'd never heard of you and I'd lived in Leicestershire for quite a while and it was the first time I'd heard of you and I think there may be other people who just are not aware of all the wonderful things that you do and and people may be able to donate something but maybe they just pick the charities that they know already and the ones that they they sort of are familiar with and I think that's wonderful and marvellous but it would be lovely to obviously get people trying to support the local one in yourself so if you are local a local business I'm guessing you're always after corporate sponsorship as well um a local business who wants to look at their corporate social responsibility within the local area and do some real good because I think that's the thing it's very tangible you could almost say this is where your money has gone this is what it has done this is how you can see what impact it has had you can almost do that for what people are donating because you you are so tangible and transparent with where the money goes and I think when we donate sometimes to a bigger charity we know we're doing some good but you're never quite sure what impact it's having and I think it's nice with the local element to know exactly the, the stories, not that you'd name individuals, but you can see that there are real people who are benefiting. I know you do put case stories out there where you can, where a family's been willing to share that and open with that. And, and that's always lovely to see just what a difference it can make. And we might think, oh, that's not very much. It won't make a difference. But I'm sure you would say that literally every single penny makes a difference. You're right, Louise. And, and we've talked a lot about statistics today, but behind each of those statistics is a family and an individual in need. And you're right, what we do is very tangible. We provide very basic essential items and it's not sexy, you know, but, but you cannot appreciate the impact on your life if you do not have these items. And it's not just about providing a cooker, a bed, clothing it's about providing healthy meals it's about providing self-dignity it's improving self-esteem it's saying that you are worth it we do care 
we can start moving forward. You can't deal with major problems in your life if you're if you're hungry and you're cold and you're tired. You need those things around you. You need to be able to have a settled home, a home that you're comfortable in to be able to start moving forward in a positive way. And that is what we're really providing. But we're doing it by providing those basic goods. Mm, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. When we think of anything, work performance, educational outcomes, nobody can function if they've not had a bed to sleep on, a breakfast in their tummy. And then we're expecting children to be performing at school with that very real background behind them. And of course, we know that some children are then wrongly labelled or wrongly falling behind. or And that does affect their in, almost their entire educational future and then their work outcomes as well further on down the line. So we know Again, coming back to the same situation as the reactive health scenario, if we look at these issues now, we're actually supporting the future economic situation of not only individuals, but of society and the country on the whole. So I think what you do is amazing. I think people should definitely get involved. Um, And I think we all need to be aware that there are people in every town, in every city in the UK who are living with these very real problems that we just think well that can't happen surely in 2022 in the UK of course people have a bed of course they they don't and that's very real and that's very it's not their fault it's it's way beyond just saying well go and get a job you know it's like my attitude when obesity is presented as well eat a bit less you know it's much more complicated much more complex and and there's so many sub issues to both of those things and unfortunately they are both going hand in hand so with the poverty, with the health, we are very much walking into a future which is going to cost the economy, society and the country more money in the future if we're not doing something about it now. So we've said our piece, we're on our soapbox, but we can't fix everything. So please do get involved, help Sue, help Charity Link, listen to the other episodes around how to donate the food parcel to be able to make meals healthily, not just donating things you don't want out of your own cupboard, not just donating foods that you think are the right things, but the nutritionally balanced recipes that we put together in that episode. So could you just remind people, tell people how they can get in touch with you, how they can support you, where, where's your web link, those sorts of things? All our details are on our website, which is charity-link.org, or they can pick up the phone and give me a call on 0116-222-2200. And all our supporters, we consider as friends. So anybody can come and have a chat with us, find us a little bit more about what we do and see how they'd like to be involved. And We welcome everybody to be part of our Charity Link family. So thank you very much for joining us today, Sue. I know you're very busy. I can appreciate how busy you are. And I know you had a late night last night, so at the comedy night. So (laughs) thank you for your time today. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that, Louise. And thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sue. You've been listening to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Masia discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book, How Food Shapes Your Child or get in touch on social media. This is a 1386 audio production. 